This week on The Lunch, we're talking with Jonas Carreron, the co-writer of Gravity. Don't forget, The Lunch is sponsored by Snoot Entertainment, makers of fine independent films like You're Next. Hi, I'm James Rocky, your regular host, and welcome to The Lunch Podcast, a weekly podcast about film and, yes, food, where every week we dine with the creator or critic in the world of film, and then after that meal, talk with them about what they had and about their work. This week, we're at the Chateau Marmont, talking with Jonas Correron, the co-writer of Gravity, the recent Sandra Bullock film directed by Mr. Correron's father, and uh, thank you very kindly for joining us, sir. No, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. We were uh, talking, uh, obviously. Uh, your time here in Los Angeles is limited, so you're getting some soup while we talk. But <laughs> one of the things I first asked you about was where essentially the idea for Gravity came from. And you explained that filmmaking was not what you wanted to do with your life at first. Can you talk briefly about your senior film in, in that I think it's something people would be intrigued by? Well, basically, I always knew I wanted to be a storyteller, to tell stories, but I never really gave too much thought and consideration to film until I my now wife back then in college girlfriend showed me this film La Jetée by Chris Marker which is a film done all with stills so that film gave me the idea to create a feature length film done all with stills you can actually find that film I believe in Fandor Mm -hmm. yes Fandor the great uh, online film streaming site for a higher end cinematic product (laughs) exactly Uh, La Jetée is of course made solely of still photographs except for one moving image it was Mm -hmm. also remade as 12 Monkeys which is how audiences might be more familiar with it (laughs) but you were saying that you had taken over 8,000 photographs in a single year Mm -hmm. and then shuffling through them you sort of saw that you could tell a story with them different from the actual facts. Mm-hmm. And you made a 60-minute long film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I mean, what did that... That must have said to you, oh, this is an exciting medium because it's many different things to tell one story, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what happened is it was really hard. Like, my, my, I guess the main challenge I had with that movie, Anya Unya, was to... To without the, with the lack of movement in the image, still be able to engage the audience. So my main two tools to do that was narrative. So I really had to work really hard on the script to create really char like really lovable characters, characters that you could engage with, and create a story that you could engage with. And at the same time, the other tool I had was sound. You know, since the images are not moving, the only way you can create that movement is with sound. And at the end of that whole process, I realized that as a storyteller, film is amazing because you have all these tools that go beyond the alphabet to tell stories. So I became really intrigued with that. And that's something that I pushed through Gravity, which is this idea that like you don't need to rely only on dialogues to tell a story and to, to, to talk about the character and themes that you can actually use all the different mediums in film. You can use visual mediums, you can use sound, and like... That's what I find really amazing in a film. It's something that like brings together all mediums into a narrative form. Um, it's also uh, incredibly fascinating to me in that you have all these pictures and you created this fiction completely separate from the reality they represent, mm-hmm. but that still works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was, that was really fun because, you know, I ended up... I had mostly images of my girlfriend, my brother, my friends, and it ended up... 
you know, I, I changed the names and I created this completely fictional narrative about like this boy who was back then my brother getting a crush and this girl, you know, like it, I, I was able, and to me it was nice also because it really blurred the boundaries on what's documentary and what's fiction, you know, which I think it's, it's very arbitrary. I think anything that tells a story is a story and the, uh, the distinction is sometimes arbitrary. It's, it's, it's I mean, I was watching a, the director of one of the year's more notable documentaries, and I won't say any names, but she kept talking about her subject, her characters, her characters. Mm-hmm. You know, we have all these characters, and I'm like, you didn't invent them. They're subjects. <laughs> but then I get the point that, you know, it's a representation. Exactly. The, the documentary is a representation. The question is how you mess with it and why, uh-huh. correct? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but you wrote, but this was all happening in, in terms of your student thesis film while your dad was busy making Children of Men. Mm-hmm. And, then he said, and then he was apparently quite surprised to see that you had wound up with a finished film, correct? Yeah, when I showed him the film, I mean, his first response when he realized there was no movement and there was all stills is the same response everyone has, which is, oh, God, you're going to make me watch 60 minutes of this? But then what happened with Anya Uña and everyone had is that after six minutes you become so engaged in the story and that you forget there's no movement. So he actually sat through the whole thing and then he turned really surprised to me and he was like, well, I didn't know you wanted to do films. And my response was like, what did you expect? You know, it's like you bombarded me with film. All you do is talk about film. My dad, like when we used to go on road trips, the way he would entertain me in the car would be kind of like practicing his pitches on different stories to me, you know? So Did you ever say no? <laughs> no. Did you, did you ever say, tell dad, me the story. dad, that just doesn't work for me, we need to bring the budget down. Oh, okay, just a story, <laughs> exactly. not the actual no, pitch. I, right. I always enjoyed those pitches. I think like, you know, my dad's a great storyteller, so it was really fascinating. And the way he managed to just tell a story for a whole hour whenever my dad tells you a story that he's developing in his head he he doesn't even write it he has like the script almost action by action in his head you know and isn't that isn't that one of the bits of magic of storytelling in that like you can internalize the zoom in to the granularity of it. You know, I can tell you, a boy and a girl meet, fall in love. Uh-huh. Or I can start talking about the trees on the day they... I mean, you, that kind of expandability is really amazing to me about storytelling, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were also saying that uh, Gravity came about in no small part because you were obsessed with one of the great uh, directorial debuts of the 1970s. Can you <laughs> talk about that really briefly? Well, basically, right after I finished Anya Uña, I started, like thinking of what movie I wanted to do next. By then I'd figured, like, after it premiered in Venice, I realized, like, okay, film is the narrative medium I want to explore. So at that point I watched, rewatched, because I'd seen it when I was little, this film by Spielberg called Duel. And I became obsessed with it. I really liked this movie where... Right now? Like, what Duel has is that it's 90 straight minutes of suspense. You have yep. this truck chasing this car and the narrative is seemingly very simple but what that movie does is that all those things the truck becomes a metaphor for everything that oppresses you in life so so what's really nice about those films is that as an audience you it's really easy to connect with that movie because you put the face of what's oppressing you at that moment on that truck. On the so grill of a truck, yeah. you have a bully yeah. at school, like the, that truck becomes a metaphor for the bully. If you have an angry boss, that truck becomes a metaphor for that. So after watching that movie, 
I really wanted to do something with that concept. So the other genius of Duel is that the truck is not a metaphor; it's a very large truck, and it's trying to kill yeah, Dennis exactly. Weaver, right? Well, there's the, like, there's it, the two, the two yeah. layers that yeah. I loved about that film, and so, so then after watching that movie, I developed the script called Desierto, which actually I'm now that gravity's finally over, I'm focusing on that again, and I'm starting to shoot it early next year. And also, Navigravity Gravity has demonstrated that you have a knack for this. I mean, <laughs> it's a, what, over $600 million worldwide? Yeah, no, it was, to me, what, like, the success of Gravity makes me really happy is that, like, yeah, also proved that the concept worked, you know? It's like, obviously, people always ask me, why do you think Gravity did so well with audiences? And I do believe that it's because more than being a space movie, more than being a fantastic visual ride. More than all these technological mm-hmm. advances working it, in concert with, tech, with artistic vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's at the end a story of adversities. So again, like it's, it's a theme, you know, like that is very relatable and the whole audience can connect with that theme, you know, like when you see Sandra, obviously the adversity is very augmented. It's space and you have debris attacking you, but again, you can project your own adversities at that moment onto her adversities and her journey of rebirth from those adversities. Our idea was that if you manage to connect the audience when the character of Ryan has that rebirth, you, in a subtle way, push the audience through a similar catharsis, you know, and And for a moment they can feel like, like free from that. And I I mean, it's a technically accomplished film, but that's one part of it. Let me ask you this, and I didn't ask you this earlier, but you mentioned that you had gravity at Telluride. Have you, as of yet, been able to catch up with All Is Lost? Just insofar mm-hmm. as those two films, those two no, films, I, I think, would make in, a great double bill. I saw it in Telluride because obviously, like, and it's the same thing. It's like, and like, what All Is Lost surprised me, and it's like, is that like, it's, it's so much. I mean, and they're two completely different rides because, like. In Gravity, a lot of our ride had to do with bringing the audience in this cathartic, suspenseful, like, nonstop... What will the resolution be? Uh Yeah. And in All is Lost, it's a completely different ride, but, like, the concept is very similar in that, like, you only have one character, and that, in a way, and a very simple narrative, and in a way, it, it allows you to create a way stronger relationship and connection with that character. I do believe that when you strip narrative to such basic forms in a way you you make the piece way more accessible to the audience. I had a friend of mine say, you know, don't you think Robert Redford would have talked to himself more? And I'm like, maybe he wouldn't have, you know? <laughs> yeah, I don't maybe, th- maybe he needed a Wilson. Maybe he's not a chatty a, Kathy like <laughs> we are. Um, but uh, No, and that's my issue with those narratives is you always have to be very careful to like, because obviously as a writer you want to fall back onto dialogue as much as you can, you know? It's a very easy way to communicate but I find it really brave when people like see no, yeah, you're alone in the ocean. Why would you talk to anyone? Like you more are focused on trying to stay alive, you know? Like yeah, very much. I mean, have you ever read Catch Twenty Two, a famous uh, Joseph Heller novel? About, mm-hmm. where, the, where the great thing about Major Yesarian's fear, uh, Yesarian's fear of flying, mm-hmm. and he explains it as a. Uh, Yasarian had a deadly fear of flying because unlike if you got in trouble on a a train or a car or a truck or a horse, when you're in trouble in a plane, 
there's nowhere else to go except another part of the same plane that is already in trouble. <laughs> and I thought about that quote during both All is Lost and Gravity, in that you really have nowhere else to go. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to find a place and hang on to it to not die. Um, you were also talking about the, uh, some of the science in the film, i.e., that when you tried to do the most perfectly scientifically accurate draft, it didn't necessarily turn out well. Can you talk about how long that draft was? <laughs> well, basically, at some point, once we finished the first draft, we started getting advice from astronauts and space experts. And for me and my dad, it was really important to make it as plausible, uh, as plausible scenario as possible, because we believe that that would help the engagement of the audience, because they would really believe for a moment, almost in a in a virtual almost reality we wanted the piece to be almost like this virtual experience for the audience so we wanted it to make it as plausible like so that the audience after the movie they felt like they'd been to space and so we started accommodating all these facts and the script ended up going from 90 pages to almost 200 just because you know, one With of the things that is not factual. orbital level. Exactly, because yeah. the thing that's not factual is that the Atlantis and the ISS are not at all clo in close orbit. So we had this really long monologue of Houston justifying, because, yeah, you could imagine a scenario where, because X or Y reason, they had decided to bring the ISS into the Atlantis' orbit. But look, that's not what the story is about. And so we decided to, like, cut all those stuff out and focus on the story. Um... I mean, it's, there's certainly nothing egregious in it. And also, um, is it weird to note that I, it, the ways in which you take advantage of a realism in that there are at least four or five shots in the film where we see Ms. Bullock, she's doing something, and in the background, things are just getting torn to shreds, and, and we hear, hear nothing. nothing. And you're all, you know, I had to restrain myself from going, over your shoulder, Ms. Bullock. Look over your shoulder. <laughs> no, you, you want to look over your shoulder right now. It was that like engaging, and yet again... No sound in space, right? Yeah, no, that was amazing. Like, since we started writing the script, silence was a constant word throughout it because in space there's no sound, and when you hear sound is through contact. Right. And in that sense, it's, it's what's really nice about, like, this whole process because, yeah, you know, most people, once you do a script like that, then the director grabs it, and then they start... Deciding. A couple sound effects here or there yeah, will really I think help tell obviously the story. Engaging, engage wise, obviously it's nice to have explosions and stuff, but but actually they really, from my dad to Chivo, I mean Manuel Lubezki to Tim Weber, they never were like, oh, you know what, zero G is impossible. Let's let's change this and that. They they actually grabbed the concept and they really pushed it. You know, I I know that a lot of the follies, the sound effects were recorded not with normal microphones, but they were recorded with contact microphones because that's how you hear things in space. So, so in that sense, like, it was really nice. Like, Gravity for me has been a really nice process because I got to imagine this whole piece very freely with my dad, putting down the words of the movie we wanted to see and then to see it transformed into a film but in a very respectful way to the script. Almost, if you read the script, it's almost... Is the non-3D, not Dolby Atmos version of it, but you do kind of can imagine a very similar thing. I mean, a good script is a good script without the sound, without the sound and thunder of special effects. I mean, also, thank God you knew the director, right? <laughs> I, mean, thank, I mean, is it fairly safe that the best way to get a, a, a the best way to find a script you don't have to fiddle with too much to make it is to actually write the script yourself? 
Mm-hmm, yeah, does that exactly. give you does that give you a, a sense of freedom from rewrite you don't have when you're working with somebody else's property? Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, and I'm sure like if the property is great, like yeah, <laughs> it's that one thing. But no, obviously, what was really nice about working with my dad is that like we both just imagined the film we wanted to watch and put that on paper, but. But then when, like, my dad took off the writer's hat and put the baseball hat, there was a very organic continuation. And Your dad wears a baseball hat when he directs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, no. no, but what I have to say I admired about my dad is that he didn't think as a director when we were writing this film. I think if he had for a moment stopped and, like, tried to think, how am I actually going to do this, he would have given up on page 10. So it was really nice that during the writing process he was thinking as a writer, you know, like let's imagine this crazy adventure, then we'll figure out how to do it, you know. There's this classic piece of advice given to beginning screenwriters, which I hate, which is that you don't start your film with a stampede of giraffes through Central Park because somebody will look at it and go, we can't afford giraffes, how will we get Central Park? Throw it over your shoulder. It's nice to know you can start with something a bit more subtle than a giraffe stampede, Mm -hmm. but still not have to worry about someone reading this and going, Space, oh, what a production level pain and throwing it away. I think that's why like, we're really blessed also right now technology-wise because I, I, really, I really, and like, that's what I keep going at. Like, if you read the script, almost all the actions and all the visual elements are there because it's a movie that had no dialogue, so we had to be really precise on all the visual elements. And it's really nice to see that you can... The same way that, like, you know, people always tell you, oh, no, you know what, be a writer. When I was growing up and I started claiming I wanted to go into film, people would always tell me, like, be a writer. As a writer, you can just imagine whatever you want and all you need is a piece of paper and a pen to make it happen. And obviously with film, it's more complicated and you need a light box and you need a lot of, like, what my dad, like, and Chivo kept calling, like, the 200 geeks working on computers and, like, making it rendering. With the LED panels designed Mm -hmm. to match CGI lighting with real elements, which is... But what's amazing is that, like, right now we live in a technological moment that if you can imagine it, you can make it happen. Uh, Mr. Lubeski, when I had the chance to interview him, very fortunately said that, you know... Cinematography has changed more in the past 10 years than it has in the previous 100. Mm-hmm. And when you put it like that, it's a fascinating realization. I, I mean, a lot of people are saying, how can gravity win best cinematography when 90% of it is CG? And my answer to that is, there's still composition. No, there's composition and there's light and there's... And there's judgment and there's art. It doesn't matter if you're bouncing light off of a physical object or, you know, creating it artificially. There's mm-hmm. still a sense of where you need to put things in the frame and how. I don't mm-hmm. feel like uh, good CGI is good cinematography. Exactly. No, in the sense that I dare any of those people to tell me in those frames what's real and what's not. Yeah. Because that's what Chivo did amazing. Like the matching of the real light with the CGI light is flawless. Like, I myself sometimes, and I was in the shoot, I sometimes, I, I'm, I like, stop myself and I try to remember, was that real or did they bring it in afterwards? You know, because that's what Chiba did amazing. The other great thing is that uh, how much of gravity is like the car shot in Children of Men, mm-hmm. just, you know in outer space much, much longer on steroids and pulled off (laughs) flawlessly, you know? It was interesting seeing the jump from that initial shot, which is Mm -hmm. brilliant in a brilliant film, to extrapolating those ideas to an entire movie. No, and that's it was like, you know, when I wrote the script and 
And you know, we like in the script, you can kind of read it like it reads as long takes, you know. Mm. And like I, it, like it was a great continuation. And then when my dad started working with Chibo, I, I I wasn't able to be in the process of Children of Men because I was in college. But then like seeing them work together, it, it's amazing. Yeah. They're like back and forth. They have. Yeah, um, Mr. Lubeski said a very, in a very charming phrase that your dad was a perfect combination of stubborn and naive, and that he didn't know it was impossible, uh-huh. and, and then he would fist on it happening stubborn. anyhow. No, that's what I have to say. I admire about him a lot. Like, and that's what gives you as a writer a freedom of yeah, let's invent this crazy stuff, you know? Because I know that he's so stubborn that it'll it'll happen, you know? Like, it's, um, I mean when. You were talking about how you had put the film through a test screening process. And can you just share some of the things you got back in that? Well, the main notes, and I mean, keep in mind that that test screening had only 30% of the rendering done, so it was mostly heads, Stick figures, wiggles, insert shot here, Mm. right. But then what happens is the audience, since a lot of the, the narrative, since the script, it was a visual experience, like... The audience obviously starts becoming terrified, and you start getting all these notes. That I guess the main notes were: we want to cut down to Houston. Mm-hmm. We'd like a love interest to be developed, a love relationship between Ryan and Mission Control. Right. How do we know that she's gonna survive after she lands on Earth? You know, when she starts walking away, yeah. how do we know that she's gonna survive? Which is like, come on. She just made it down to earth after that, like anything's a joke. <laughs> after that, know? everything else is gravy. I can, I can make it out of the water just fine now that I'm out of space. The most bizarre note, I mean, at least to me, was how do we know she landed safely in the U.S. and that she's not, not going to be kidnapped? You know, so... so <laughs> Wait a second. I think you've got your sequel pitch. Yeah, exactly. Liam, you realize she's in Mexico. And then <laughs> Liam Neeson shows up to get her back because he has specialized skills. I think, I think it's time to keep this rolling. Yeah, you're right. But you also said something really, really interesting and forthright, which I wanted to talk about about the test screening, which is that while you don't have to take people's notes exactly, you do have to get a sense of the things those notes were in response to. Exactly. I mean, and... Just going back quickly to my dad's stubbornness, I think that that's something that when those notes started coming in, it was really easy for us to filter and to figure out the best way to respond to them in the sense that my dad's stubborn. And since the beginning, our main concept was this is a movie where you're going to be in a roller coaster emotional ride with that character. So obviously when the notes start coming in of cut down to mission control, that was really easy for us to know the answer. No, because we need to stay with her, you know? But on the same hand, what like what we started doing with those notes is understanding where maybe there's still weak things on the script. I'm a huge fan of rewrites. This is a project that I was really blessed because it took one... We wrote it in one month, but after that it took one year to start getting the ball rolling, through which my dad because, and I, because of the astronaut notes, we started rewriting. Then it took two years for the technology to be developed so that they could film it. And at that point, obviously, you're still working. Then there was the year when we shot with the actors because we shot at two different stages. We shot first 80% of the film and then a year later, 20%. So in, during the shoot, we kept rewriting with, their, with the actors, fine-tuning their characters. And then during that year in between those two shoots because the test screenings happened and stuff, we kept... Re, you know, I, I do believe that, like... A script's not finished until you're done on the editing room. I mean, a week before 
no, not a week, like a month before it had premiered in Venice, I was still having to rewrite stuff for my dad because he was still doing ADRs, you know, like... But there's a great line about how you have three times to make your film, when you write it, when you shoot it, when you cut it. Uh-huh, exactly. And there's nothing bad about those three things working together. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when somebody says to you, we can make this movie, it'll just take two years to develop the technology, I mean... What well, do you say to people? You can't just say, well, work harder. You know. <laughs> well, it actually was the other way around, bringing up my... Now going back to my dad's naivete, which Chivo mentioned. Like, it took us one month to write the script, and the reason we started writing the script is because I was in London with him because a project that we had written that he was already prepping had fallen apart because of the financial crisis. It was a more... Independent movies, so like the international financial financiers, yeah, Mm -hmm. because of the financial crisis. So we were in London, and we started thinking we were unemployed, pretty broke. So we were like, okay, we need to write something fast so that we can get the next project going. And what happened is the whole month we were writing the script. I remember my dad being very, very excited, telling me this is going to be such an easy movie to shoot. There's only two characters in space. In less than a year, I'll be done with this project. It's perfect. And then when he showed Did you it record to, that yeah, conversation exactly. and play it back to him so you could mm-hmm. laugh hysterically? Well, Chibo did that because what happened is when we were done with the script, my dad called Lubezki very excited. He said, look, I'm going to send you a script. We can shoot this so easy, so fast. It's only two characters. Read it. And then for the next four years, Lubezki kept reminding my dad of those words. Yeah, it'll, be so <laughs> it'll be so easy. It'll be so easy. There's the, the one great thing uh, that you were able to work on as part of Gravity was the uh, companion short film whose Icelandic name I can never pronounce. Please. Greenlandic is Anningang. Anningang, Greenland, Greenland name, yes. <laughs> Not, uh, yeah, Greenlandic, no. Greenland, yes. Uh, Anningang, which is uh, the other side of the conversation we see in the, uh, in the film. And I... I'm curious about the genesis of that, because there's a phone call, there's another side of it, but you took a crew to Greenland Mm -hmm. and shot the other side of it. And I'm wondering, where did that come from? I mean, it was clearly an idea that you wanted to do, but essentially, who put up the money and why? (laughs) Well, basically, since we're writing the script, one of the main metaphors that we wanted to explore in the movie was this idea of communication like the character of Ryan someone that like is, has lost all communications with Earth so we knew we wanted to arrive to this scene where she finally manages to communicate with Earth with a human force with another human like Ryan is a character that even before the movie had started she had shut herself up you know so metaphorically we wanted since her journey is going to bring her back to like embracing life we wanted her to reach this moment where she communicates with someone that even though they don't understand each other one word of what they're saying, they're going to have a communication that goes on a deeper level, you know? So as we were writing the scene, my dad and I knew what the other side of that conversation was, but again, going back to that dogma of we're not going to cut down to earth, we stay, we stay on Ryan through that conversation. Which, I mean, this whole thing is that I can completely understand the desire people might have for a cut mm-hmm. down to earth because it would, like... Explain. And the tension. Uh-huh. It would be a break in the, I can't breathe, it's very dark, <laughs> exactly. it's very cold. But that's exactly why you don't want to do it at the same time. Well, right? exactly. Yeah. What we want is we don't want, we didn't, at least me, I'm like, I'm maybe speaking for my dad, but I didn't want 
people to come out saying, oh, I just watched a film, which a film does that, it cuts down to earth. We wanted them to come out of an experience, you know, right. like we've just been in space. Yep. It's the cheap version of Virgin space travel. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you have, I mean, so you say, okay, we know the other side of it, we know the other side of it takes place on earth. And then like my dad and I started, f look, when you're a writing, the writing process can be like tedious, not tedious, I guess it's just it's long and you're spending lots of hours together so sometimes you and you're talking and talking about the story so you develop little other things, side conversations that you have and one of those side conversations is we kept fantasizing about the idea of once we're done shooting the movie doing this short, you know, shooting that same scene in another point of view and uh, and we were really lucky that once we were done shooting the movie, Warner Home Video got my dad mentioned in passing the idea to them and they became really excited about the idea so they financed for me to go to Greenland and the problem is just to get to Greenland is really expensive so what I had to do is like kind of find everything on my own so I went two weeks before everyone else and I like just dock sled throughout the region and you were a location scout you were doing the hiring I noticed <laughs> the crew has a lot of people with Dottir in their last name yeah, exactly. you had a lot of local Greenlanders uh -huh. yeah and during that process, I learned a lot of things that informed that conversation. So I ended up doing changing the dialogues, but I was lucky that my dad hadn't finished this audio mix, so then I sent him the new dialogues, because we did want both pieces to be kind of like sister pieces. And it was, was I mean, did you find that artistically being in the same room, but outside of the box, i.e. I'm not in space while I write this, I'm not with Sandra Bullock's character, Ryan Stone, did it change the way you thought about all of that material when you're able to look up to it from a perspective of Greenland? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, in a lot of ways, since we wrote the script, we chose Greenland is because it's one of those few locations. I mean, and my dad and I have been there. Maybe there's others that we haven't been to, but like that we could imagine has a, something that parallels space in that like you're completely isolated and it's a very harsh environment so and in the absence of technology and protection you're dead <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. basically so so like but then going to Greenland obviously like it's a whole complete different thing you know it's like because it's actually the opposite now that you bring up technology you know, gravity is this very, like, technological, even when she's stranded in space, there's always technology flying around. Technology is what's chasing her, in a way, is like pieces of debris. And when you go to Greenland, one of the things I love about Greenland, the two times I've gone, is that you feel like you're in a timeless world, where it could be either now or it could be, like, a thousand years ago, just because the way people move around is a whole different... Right, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, she has her spacesuit, he has his dog. Yeah. She has a radio, he has a radio. Uh -huh. You know, the radio is the other. She has a space shuttle, he has a tent, and without yeah, either both, they're, they're both going to die. <laughs> Have you had the chance to see the film with people, and is it one of those things where. I always find it interesting when movies unlock things in people. Mm -hmm. And have you had people say to you, you know, while I, of course, have never been in space, this movie really, really got to me because of X. I'm wondering what people fill in as X when they tell you that. As X, I mean, it tends to be, I do think that, like, the main thing that, like, people are connecting with it is the adversities, the idea yeah. of adversities. I, I think that, like, that's 
a, such a universal, at least a, a, a universal theme. You know, I, I, at least my life is filled with them. They kind of come every 90 minutes, like the debris. So, so <laughs> regular cycle of destruction that seems never <laughs> yeah, ending. Exactly. So I think that's the main thing audiences connect. And of course, just the experiential ride. One of the main things I love of seeing the movie, the times I've seen it with an audience, is then like the few times I've gone with friends and then we walk out of the movie theater and, and, and seeing just the physical language. People are literally exhausted as if they went through the journey. Their legs tremble, like, you know, like, it, it, it's... To me, the few times I've gone to see it with an audience has been very gratifying. I always think that, you know, the adrenal glands are a muscle. You can't <laughs> exhaust them, right? And after a really great, gripping, rough film, it's like, okay, I'm beat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just very, very tired. Um, uh, obviously, you've obviously been in the States before. I mean, it was an incredibly banal side note, but you have, of course, been to Disneyland, right? Yeah. Have you been, have you been on the California's Great Adventure ride where they, they put you in a seat and then they raise the seats up so it's as if you're floating and moving while you watch us flying over California? And I think that in a perfect world, you show gravity in there. Uh-huh. When just you know move the seats in concert with the uh, with the well, action. Well, they growing up they had a lot of the, I never I don't remember that one, but I remember Universal Studios they had Back to the Future, which yeah. was that you were in the car and you would see that, and then I mean that was in the U.S., but in Mexico I don't know if you guys had it here in Ferris, more like small itinerant Ferris. They would always have this thing that looked like an actual space rocket, and, and you would walk in and the thing you would have the screen that was supposed to be the window, and like the whole thing would shake. I grew up in small town Canada. I know about itinerant county fairs. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. They can be pretty lame, but also <laughs> awesome. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, and that's one of the things, like, we did want to create a submersive experience for the audience, almost virtual. Like, and it's funny because, you know, people uh, in different Q&As that I was with my dad, they compared, brought up, like, the word video games. You know, and like at first that word kept jumping up to my dad because obviously like it's a narrative form. We like did not no try film to. No ever ever wants to hear he made a video <laughs> yeah. game, right? Yeah. Well, no. They, they, not <laughs> okay, no good <laughs> filmmaker ever wants to. Hear. Anyhow, but, but then basically what I, you know, what I tried to explain to my dad is that it comes from the audience. You know, like I, nowadays. The, the most, the closest we have to those rights that we were talking about are video games. So, like, when you're talking to a young audience, if you put them in a submersive virtual experience, the first thing that they're going to grab onto is video games. Because most people, what, why they bring up the video game is because of the POV shots. And my dad keeps saying, great, like... There was a great essay recently about the psychology of a first-person shooter, which is that it's, oh, the character's eyes are my eyes, mm-hmm. has become, like, the predominant narrative form of, of video, video games. Game. And, like, my dad kept saying, like, so now you're telling me any POV shots of video game? POV shots have been going on since the 20s. And it's what I was telling you. It was what, what, what I think is, is, is more symptomatic of the audiences nowadays, where like, they connect immediately a POV shot with a video game, because that's the closest because we have to Because it would release gravity in the 1950s. A, the astronaut would be Burt Lancaster. <laughs> exactly. And B, everybody would be talking about Rear Window when you went to the POV <laughs> shot. Uh-huh. We've been talking with screenwriter Jonas Coron, the co-writer of Gravity. Uh, we're uh, at the Chateau Marmont. You're enjoying a butternut squash soup, or as much as you can, even while we talk. But just out of curiosity, I know that traveling with films means a lot of hotels and a lot of 
you know, room service and what have you, but are there places in LA you love to eat? Are there places in other LA than hotels? Other than hotels, exactly. Uh, but I'm gonna like be so bad with names here. I mean, I love LA because of that. It has. It surprised me when I started coming, but it has amazing food. I'm like, I, I grew up in New York. Since high school, I've been in New York, and I always thought New Yorkers had good food. But it's nothing compared to LA. Like, the food here is really I, it's, it's, a, it's a combination of different things, right? It's the whole Alice Waters seasonal ingredients thing, and we have a year-round growing season. It's the fact that in LA, you have a money for people who can afford to eat really, really well. Well, you'd expect the same out of New York. Right. But also, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I also think that... L.A. is a bit more of a culinary melting pot. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to explain it other than that. But I do know that, you know, I can enjoy a fancy chef's play on carne asada, but I can also go down the block and pay two bucks and get some really, really good carne asada. No, exactly. It's, it's right there. Um, well, like, from Mexican food, obviously, like, you know, in downtown L.A., there's great Mexican. But just those carts that you're talking about, I love getting those tacos. When I've been too long outside of Mexico, I love that. But also Japanese, like... I'm probably going to say the name wrong, but there's this restaurant over Laurel Canyon called Asanevo, I think it's Yes, called. and that place is incredible. And I've been going there since, you know, because my dad worked here, so I would come visit him a lot as a kid. And I remember I was coming to Asanevo when I was like seven, and it was just this little dingy little sushi place, and he brought me again like a year ago. And I was so surprised of how much it changed, but the food is still as delicious, you know. Uh, have you seen the film Jiro Dreams of Sushi? <laughs> No, it's I know this, it it's this great documentary about how one of Japan's best sushi chefs operates this little place in a subway station. Mm -hmm. That's like the equivalent of a little convenience store where you would buy magazines and gum and what have you. But the, one of the best guys who makes sushi just does it out of that place. Mm -hmm. I find that Thanks. fascinating. When you toured NASA, did you steal any of the space food? Did you have any astronaut ice cream? Did you take any <laughs> of the uh, the, the not at NASA, but like growing up, but like I, you know, I used to always go to the science museum and like <laughs> I would love the astronaut ice cream because it's freeze dried. It's yeah, got exactly. no water in it. I went to the Ontario Science Center when I was a kid, and you <laughs> still got the same thing <laughs> because vacuum dried sugar is <laughs> always entertaining for, for kids. kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so you're working on another film right now, presumably something a bit more grounded, literally and figuratively. <laughs> literally. It's one of the things I learned from my dad as a director on this shoot is never make a movie where characters float. You make a movie where they walk, where they run, where they crawl, but like if you can avoid zero gravity, that's yeah. amazing. It's the whole thing of never work <laughs> with children or dogs. Yeah, now there's a new And lady. always be in a gravitational field. <laughs> exactly. So this is, I'm working on this movie called Desierto, which mm -hmm. is starring Gael Garcia. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the movie that I, it's the script that I showed to my dad four years ago that ignited the conversation that led to gravity. It's, uh, the story is very simple. It's the character chasing another character across the desert. But the idea of, that I have with this type of movies is that even though you have such simple narrative and you have almost no room for dialogues, through metaphors you can talk about many other things. And existential isolation, where you have to fill it yes. up with what's in the characters' heads and uh -huh. lives. So that's basically what I'm working on right now. I start shooting early next year. We look forward to it very much. We've been talking with Jonas Coron, the co-writer of Gravity, and you've been listening to The Lunch Podcast, a podcast about mm -hmm. film and, yes, food. You can find us on Twitter at The Lunch Podcast, and you can find me, your host, James, on Twitter at James Rocky. Our greatest thanks to Warner Brothers for setting us up and to the Chateau Marmont for having us. More importantly, until the next edition, go see the movies. 
have a meal afterwards with your friends, talk about it. It's a good thing. Turn to the sun.